Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion about the C exam. We've had a lot of people reach out to us with questions about how did we study? How was the test itself? What are areas that uh, of advice that we would give to somebody that's about ready to take it? And so obviously we're not going to go through specific questions or things that were on the exam, but we do want to go through what study tips worked for us, what types of strategies that we use in terms of both studying as well as actually during the test, what test taking tips or strategies that we did that we felt were very helpful. And if we had to go back and do it again, what are some things that we would do differently in terms of studying, taking the test, strategies, et cetera. So without further ado, Tanner, you just want to start us off here with uh, really one of the first questions that we've got from people is how do we balance school while also trying to study uh, for our classes, plus the C exam, plus being in clinical full-time. It's just a lot of work. And I don't think anybody would argue the fact that anesthesia school is so time-consuming. And so our time is really, we've always said, our biggest commodity. And it's really an art of how do we try to be efficient with our time, balance our time. Uh, It's just a a big struggle. And so that's really uh, the, the number one question that we've gotten from people is how do you find that balance to make sure you're doing the do justice for how much study needs to go into this test while also keeping up with your clinical and school duties. I think you did a better job of this even throughout school as far as just studying. If you got a break, you would always tell me like you had 10 minutes between a case and you would get on Apex or you would pull up your phone and go through a study guide. This is not something I really started doing until probably the month or two before my C exam. And I felt like when you talk to your preceptors and you just told them, Hey, my C is coming up and I'm just trying to get some study time in between cases. I wouldn't be dipping out of cases early or, you know, avoiding any kind of clinical case work. But if you have a little bit of downtime, I never felt like they minded if you were on the computer and you could just look up something. So I think for me, that passively helped me on things that I wasn't quite as familiar with, or I don't know, Cole, if I know you did that kind of throughout school, but that was something I implemented towards the end. And I felt like that really paid dividends, just even taking a few questions or um, getting on Quizlet and and going through, say the lumbar plexus, you don't remember exactly everything that is involved there. I would just try to take a few minutes to review. And I thought that really helped me balance my time. Yeah, I totally agree. That's something that I always tried to do was whenever I had a little bit of time, I would try to be as efficient as possible, especially with having uh, you know, young kids at home. I knew that once I got home, my availability to study was going to be not quite as efficient uh, just because I'd have so many distractions. And so I really try to maximize any free time I had during the day, even if it was just a little bit of free time. Now, if it was only five or 10 minutes between cases, there's not really much you can do from that aspect. But if I had, you know, a 45 minute gap, I would definitely be sitting down trying to take advantage of that time and 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 doing some type of, of studying or work for school. How far ahead of the actual C exam do you feel like you started your intensive studying? Intensive studying, probably two to three weeks. Uh, I was going to say for, for me, it was like, two weeks, probably top. So that was the other thing I would say is some people I know spend 
tons and tons of time studying for the C or they're really disciplined and spend 30 minutes every day. And that's great if that's you, but that's not, that's just not me. And so for me, I was using the time in clinical as I could, but I really didn't start studying for the C until like two weeks ahead of time. And I used my evenings to study. Obviously it looks different if you have kids or you have other things that are vying for your time. But for me, I felt like I would just kind of dilute my mind space if I was trying to study too far out in advance. And for me, it was like, I can be really efficient for two weeks and prepare compared to kind of doing a so-so job watching TV while I'm clicking through Apex or whatever. To me, that's just not really that beneficial. So I didn't, I didn't really spend much time ahead of that two weeks on it. And I think that's even applicable today. Tanner and I were just talking before we started recording this episode. We're both taking our NCE board exam tomorrow, actually. And this is only three weeks after we took our C exam. And it's amazing how much I've already forgotten since when I studied and took the C exam. I'm going through things this week, getting ready for boards. And I'm just amazed at how much already just went out the other ear from when I studied for the C exam. And I think that that just adds to the point you were making where you can try studying two or three months in, in advance and really hitting it hard. But from my personal opinion, there is so much detailed information that you need to know for these exams that it's just so hard to keep all that in the forefront of your mind. And it's just so mentally exhausting. And I, I just told my wife today, I'm like, I am so excited to get this NCE uh, exam done tomorrow because I feel like my brain is about ready to explode with all these facts that I'm trying to, to, to hold in my brain. And it's amazing because after the C exam, that just all you know fell out just a couple of days later. Uh, and again, I feel like I'm obviously retaining a lot more than I did before I took the C exam. But there's just you have to take uh, you have to be aware of the fact that you're you're not going to be able to hold all that all of that information to the forefront of your brain. And so what I tried to do is for the couple months leading up to the C, I wasn't necessarily studying for just force memorization. Rather, when I would go look at things, it was more from a concept standpoint. And so I tried to just read through things, and rather than make a strong effort to memorize it. I decided to make a strong effort to understand it. And if I understood it, then I checked that off the list and moved on. And then when I got to about two or three weeks before the test, I ran through every topic again in the anesthesia curriculum that we did for school. And from that standpoint, then I tried to memorize as much as I could. But it was amazing how much just from those couple months leading up to it, when I focused on the concept, it was amazing how much of that just stuck with me. And I didn't necessarily need to memorize things quite as often and as frequent when I was going through this final review in the last two weeks. So in terms of how we actually studied for the C exam, I think everybody has their own way. And this is just going to be, again, our experience and what we used. but we used a lot of Apex. And I know people have different strategies and different programs, but Apex to me was really helpful. And Another thing that people would ask is, how do you even get started? I mean, this is like a ton of information. How do you get going studying for this massive test? Something that I really liked with Apex and also with the C exam, because we, we took it twice. We took it once as juniors, and then we took it again in order to graduate. But when we took it as juniors, they'll give you a breakdown of how you do in the different categories, but it's not all that specific. What I really like about Apex is they have these tests that you can take at the end. They're mock exams. They have seven of them currently. 
And after you take one, it'll break down how you did in each of their units. So they have their units broken down into respiratory, neuro, cardiac, you know, all these different categories. And it'll break down the number of questions you had right versus the number of questions you were asked in that specific category. So to me, I took my my weakest three and then I went back and I started studying read those chapters. Uh, I really like Nagelhout. So I would read Nagelhout, read those chapters, go back in the actual sections and apex, study those. To me, that was a really good starting point for how to get going on such a massive amount of information. The other thing is some people were asking what you would score Some because other people are using those apex too. I'll just straight up tell you my scores. And then if that's helpful, great. But my first uh, exam, I got a 74% on Mach 2. I had a 65. Mach 3, I had a 62. Mach 4, I had a 47. Proud day for me. Mach 5, I had a 57. And Mach 6, I had a 55. So that's what I was, that's what I was scoring to uh, prepare for the C. And our passing for the C was 441. And I, I passed that when I actually took the C. So, I mean... It, it never really felt like you were just dominating those tests, but I felt like it prepared you pretty well to actually take the C exam. Yeah. When I was going through those exams, the mock exams, that is, it actually at first made me less confident about going into the C exam because I'm used to getting you know over 80% on pretty much all these exams going through school and then seeing these 60s, upper 50s, low 70s on these mock exams it almost gave me a false sense of like, I, I'm not going to do well on the C exam. I'm definitely not going to pass this based on the scores I'm getting. But by the time I got to the last couple of mock exams that Apex offers, it really started to um, become aware to me just how much these mock exams focused on areas that I was weakened because there'd be topics that I would go through and say, okay, I know enough about this topic. I'm going to do fine on it. But then the question was worded in a way that it was like that one area of that topic that I didn't understand. And it did a very good job of picking out areas that I was weak in or that I lacked uh, knowledge in. And by the end of those mock exams, I really felt like I had a more comprehensive view on the information. And that ended up going really well for the C exam for me. I scored in um, 494 on the C exam. And that was after getting, I remember two nights before I took the C exam, I was taking one of the apex mock exams and I got an upper fifties on that test. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no way I'm going to score well on the C exam. So I was thoroughly shocked and impressed with how well I did on the C exam, actually, based on how poorly I thought I was doing on these mock exams. So my, my point being, don't go into those mock exams. If you choose to take them and let it get you down, if you're scoring in those range of percentile, uh, because it, it really is, where you should be, if you're around the 60%, then you should be fine in terms of passing the C exam. I think I would caution people to, when you're studying, it's easy to, even if you're listening to this and you're not using Apex, if you're using Prodigy or using, you know, whatever other study method you use, I think it's easy to think, oh, they were successful using that. I should use that. Or I heard somebody was using this method and it worked for them. And then all of a sudden you're kind of scattered and you're trying to do a little bit of everything. Maybe that works for you. It does not work for me. I feel like you need to figure out what one specific thing helps you. All of it probably has enough information to help you actually know the things you need to know for the C. It just is, are you learning it? You know, Are you spending the time to memorize it, to understand it, 
And so I think you can try a million different ways to study. And just in my experience, I feel like that makes you pretty inefficient at all things instead of giving you one or two things that you really like. Pick one or two books that you like, pick one or two study methods you like. And I feel like just having a really efficient way to study for me paid paid a lot of dividends. Again, I don't I'm not one that's going to study for like months on end and be really disciplined. I need short amount of time and to be efficient. So another question that we've gotten pretty frequently is what are the specific areas on the test that we need to study for? So while we don't want to give away any specific questions um, or things like that, that would interfere with the integrity of the test, uh, we do want to talk about just some of the things that were high points for us that were big concepts that we both discussed prior to going into the test. And obviously, you know, we both passed. So um, we want to uh, give along this information that we use prior to going into the test. And the first thing that Tanner and I talked about is understanding the concept of how hydrogen, calcium, potassium, how all of those interrelate to each other. Um, and they're really interwebbed together. And what I was realizing is if you understood the concept of how these all mesh together, when you're posed the question that you have no idea what in the world they're asking about. It could be some disease process that is completely out of left field. You've never heard of before. And you look at your answer choices. If you know the concept of how these things relate together, oftentimes if these type of concepts would come out in the, in the um, answers, I would be able to recognize which answers all point towards the same direction. And I'll kind of go into this in a specific example here, but if you're doing a multiple choice question and let's say two or three of the answer choices all pointed in the same concept or same direction, I knew that neither of them could be the right answer because with a multiple choice question, only one answer is correct. So if I have two of these answer choices pointed in the same direction, I don't even care what the question's asking for because I've never heard of this disease process. I just know logically it can't be one of those two answers because they're both pointing the same way. So if one of them is correct, the other one would have to be correct. So that would immediately eliminate those answer choices for me. And oftentimes I could find three of them that were the same way, which leaves an odd man out. And I would just select that as my answer, even though I have no idea what the question was asking. So what do I mean when I'm talking about this? So for an example, Tanner and I discussed the concept of how when you have, let's say, an acidotic patient. So the first step would be, well, how does CO2 relate to that? And this is something that's kind of been ingrained in all of our heads. So if I'm like hyperventilating the patient, by hyperventilating, you're going to drive the CO2 downward. So a low CO2 correlates with a high pH. So they're inversely related. So I know I'm going to be alkalotic when I have a low CO2. So that's the first step. The second step would be what happens with potassium. So potassium and hydrogen have a flip-flop. They're inversely related in, in the way that I view it. So what I mean by that is if I have a lot of hydrogen floating around in my plasma or my bloodstream, I'm going to be in an acidotic state because my pH will be low the more hydrogen I have. Well, the more hydrogen I have, it tries your body tries to balance it out and it tries to shift more of that hydrogen into the cell and gets it out of the plasma. But by doing that, it has to bring it has to bring potassium out of the cell to be balanced in terms of the charges. They both have positive charges. So I know if I have a patient who's acidotic, 
then more of that H is going to want to be pushed into the cell, which means more potassium is going to be brought out. So if I have an acidotic patient, I have to think my potassium is going to go up then. And the last part of this was with calcium. How does the acidotic patient affect calcium? So calcium and hydrogen both compete to bind to the albumin molecules floating around in the plasma. So if I have a acidotic patient, a lot of hydrogen, then more of that hydrogen is going to be competing against that calcium for a spot on the albumin. And so if I have a ton of hydrogen, more hydrogen will bind to the albumin than the calcium does, which means I'll have more free calcium floating around in the plasma. So I'll have a higher calcium level and vice versa. If I have an alkalotic patient, so I don't have a lot of hydrogen, more of the hydrogen will leave the albumin. So it can increase the plasma level of the hydrogen, which gives you more free spots for that calcium to bind to the albumin, which will lower your calcium level. So Tanner and I discussed this concept really right before our C exam. And we found there was a lot of times where there were several answer choices that related that. So what I mean by this is an answer choice would say you have an alkalotic picture. Another answer choice would say you have a low CO2 or you're hypocarbic. And so I would know, okay, well, those two both point the same direction because if I have a high pH or if I'm alkalotic, that means I also have a low CO2 level because they're inversely related. So instantly those two answers cannot be one of the actual correct answers if it's a multiple choice question. However, if it's a select all that apply, then I would pair those together and I would say, okay, if one of those is correct, the other one has to be correct. Now the answers may be something that points the other direction, but at least I know those two pair together. And then I would look at potassium and say, okay, so if one of the answer choices was alkalotic, then that means that more hydrogen needs to come out of the cell to balance that out, which means more potassium will move into the cell. So I'll be low on my potassium level. So I would look for any answer choice that has to do with potassium and see which points in that direction. So you kind of gather this picture here. And if you understand the concept, you can try to figure out which answer choices all pair together and find the odd man out. And I found that that was significantly helpful because I don't know about you, Tanner, but Honestly, there's probably about one in every six questions that I said, yep, I for sure know that answer. The rest were just educated guesses. And so the more educated guesses that you can make, the better off you're going to be. I agree because I I remember taking it and just thinking, I mean, when I walked out, I, I, I could not look at the sheet that he handed me and it has your score on there. And I was like, I, I have no idea what the score is going to be if I pass, if I didn't. And I think that is is part of it. So somebody asked on on Instagram, how confident were you while you were taking the test? And I think some part of you hopes that it's just going to be like memorization and it's just going to be, okay, what is cranial nerve for? And you can at least just, you know that there's one correct answer. But I feel like most of these were, like you just explained, Cole, you're trying to work your way through and you're pairing answers that are together. Maybe you've never heard of this disease process, or maybe you know exactly what the disease process is, but they call it a different name that you've never heard of. I feel like that is so frustrating. You're like, well, obviously I know what that is, but I didn't know you could call it that. And so then you're just looking through the different answers and you're just having to critically think. I hate saying that on this side of it because I don't think that's terribly helpful, but I just, I was not very confident as I was going through it. I felt like every, for me, it was probably less than six. I was like, oh yeah, hundred percent. That's, I got that one onto the next. So 
I think for, for me, I, I have my study guides here that I wrote before taking the C and this was just going through everything and trying to identify areas that I needed to memorize. Cause like Cole said, you understand a lot of the concepts, but then when you're buckling down, preparing for the C or preparing for boards, it seems like it's a lot of memorization things that you just need to really key in on before you go and take the board. So uh, some of this was just the different equations that you would need to know things as simple as blood pressure, uh, changing temperature from Celsius to Fahrenheit, BMI. Those are like, I, I can't even remember if I had any of those, but those are just really easy questions if they ever show up that you want to at least make sure you know those. Um, but I would write down just in categories, what would be different? So like when I got to uh, muscle relaxants, what are the ones that release histamine? What one is the vagolytic? I feel like that comes up a lot when you're looking through study questions, pancuronium need to remember that that's the vagolytic. So um, if you have somebody that has cardiac history, you're also thinking pancuronium, you're also thinking the other histamine releasing drugs, um, knowing which nerve fibers are blocked first, knowing what PKA goes with the different local anesthetics, knowing the blood gas coefficients of your inhalational agents, knowing which ones are different, such as nitrous and the effects on the cardiac and the cerebral blood flow. So I feel like when you, when you pick out the things that are different in those main categories, really memorizing those, I felt like was, was really helpful. I'm looking through my, my study sheet. This, this was my final thing that I wanted to just look over the night before. So I wanted to look at the um, different plexuses, lumbar plexus, sacral plexus, brachial plexus, wanted to look at the clotting cascade, make sure I knew the internal and external pathways, nephron where diuretics worked, uh, make sure I knew my gas laws, uh, which meds were mineral corticoids, which ones were glucocorticoids, knowing my waveforms for CVP, wedge, A-line, knowing how those paired together with electrical activity, memorizing my cranial nerves, gas cylinders. I feel like that's something that you've been asked since the very first time, just knowing which tests going back to like the clotting cascade for your PTT, ACT, that's going to be your intrinsic pathway. PTINR is your extrinsic pathway. That was honestly, when I got in there, that was all stuff that I tried to write down. They give you a sheet that you can write down things. So as soon as I sat down, I basically wrote down all of that. And I don't usually do that. I'm not usually one that would brain dump, but it helped a lot for me just with anxiety of, okay, I don't need to like retain that information in my head anymore. I don't think I actually used it very much, but it was just nice to know on that sheet, I've got all that stuff. Now I can just take each question at face value and answer it. And if I need to, I've got a sheet that I can look over to. Are you looking to join an organization where you can work at your full scope of practice? Join Sound Anesthesia's team and benefit from CRNA leadership with over 20 years of experience. Sound CRNAs enjoy career development, a clear leadership pathway, robust well-being resources, and the ability to perform at the top of their license. Sound is dedicated to providing our CRNAs with the tools needed to thrive in their practice. With multiple nationwide opportunities, we are confident you will find the right program for you. Learn more at careers.soundphysicians.com. Another part for me that I thought was really interesting was just the special populations in terms of geriatrics, obesity, neonates, 
pregnancy patient, all those things that would differentiate them from a normal adult patient. And what I mean by that is just understanding how are my lung volumes going to change if I go from a normal sized adult patient to now an obese patient, or if I take a normal adult and look at now a geriatric patient, what's going to be different in those special populations in terms of respiratory status. So how's my FRC going to change? How's my elasticity going to change? How's my lab values going to change? Cardiovascular going to change? What were the things that stood out? And I really looked at that throughout all my studying. When I ran through everything, those two weeks before the test, I really tried to make note of what things stood out. For example, Tanner already talked about the histamine releasing drugs. So I made a really special note of which drugs across all pharmaceutical medications, which drugs released histamine. So for opioids, you know, that'd be morphine, for example, for my neuromuscular blockers, that would be atricurium or succinylcholine. And what, what things were going to cause that histamine release. And then I knew histamine was going to be causing them to be more tachycardic and potentially hypotensive. And then all you had to do was realize, okay, what question is asking something that I would not want to cause tachycardia or hypotension from or histamine release? Like, for example, if I had an asthmatic patient, well, I don't want to give something that's going to cause histamine release. And so I would look through which answers had a possibility of a medication that would release histamine. And so you try to pull those informations from different topics together. Uh, and that's just kind of something that I tried to do throughout. So that's a perfect example that Tanner used was the histamine releasing drugs. Um, another example would be if I was trying to find something that stood out as I was studying, let's say, IV induction medications. I recognize that ketamine has by far a lower protein binding compared to any of the other medications. Or for example, chloroprocaine for the local anesthetics has uh, 0% protein binding compared to the other medications. And so I, I made note of those exceptions because I feel like those are heavy hitting test questions. In terms of actually taking the test, I think Cole, it'd be interesting to hear some of your test taking strategies that you use. You're a much better test taker than, than I am. For me, it was a lot about managing my test anxiety and also trying to just stay fresh with the questions. So for me, I knew I need to figure out how I'm going to break this down so that I can just stay relaxed and make sure I stay on track. So I went in and I said, okay, I'm just going to take the first hundred questions I've taken a hundred questions before at home when I was studying for things. So a hundred felt manageable to me. I took a hundred. I got up, I left, I walked down the hall, I stretched. I was just moving my arms in big circles. I'm sure they have security footage of me. That looks crazy, but I was just like, I need to move reset. I went back and sat in the waiting room. The test proctor was there. We actually talked for like 10 minutes, which was really helpful for me just about current events, just the weather, really nothing related to, to school. And I felt like I was completely reset and I was like, okay, now I just need to go back in, take another 50 questions, did the same thing. I took another 50 uh, after that. And then I went back in and said, okay, I just need to go back in and take the last questions. And so I took it in basically four sections. And for me, it felt like it stayed fresh. It felt like I wasn't getting bogged down with the, the sheer number of questions. And um, I just completely 
reset between each time I went back in there. And I didn't, if I felt like I didn't do very well in the last 50, I didn't bring that over to the next 50. I just went and took it like it was a new test. And for me, that was, that was really helpful, but Cole, I know you have a lot of just even you talked a little bit earlier about like, if two questions are pointing the same direction, they can't be the correct one if it's multiple choice. But uh, do you want to talk a little bit about just some of the test taking strategies you, you use? Yeah. First of all, only you would go out and talk about current events in the middle of your C exam. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This guy, he was, <laughs> he goes, he goes, Oh, are you really anxious? And I'm like, well, you know, just a little but I just, you know, like to, um, you know, just kind of reset or, or whatever. And he's like, yeah. And he starts telling me a little bit about like his health history with anxiety and we start talking and then he starts talking about, um, like how health insurance is covering different things. So we're literally talking about like, the health insurance coverage. And I mean, we were down like way down a rabbit hole by the time I was like, you know, time's ticking. I, I eventually need to go back in there, but he yeah. was such a nice guy. <laughs> like I would never <laughs> even think about, I mean, I'm polite enough to be like, hi, how's it going? But like my, my mind would be constantly thinking I need to get back in there the whole time. I'm telling you that was what was so good for me is that I, I wasn't. And I was like, it was like, I, I took a test and now I was going to go in and take the second test, you know, it was, it was completely, completely different, but oh my I God. mean, I wasn't intending to make friends with that, that gentleman, but. <laughs> well, if that works for you and if that gets your brain distracted and then gets you refreshed, by all means, go ahead and do that. Like when I took my exam, I think I had almost overstudied for the week leading up to it. And by the time I finally got to the test, I almost felt like my brain was just exhausted. And I remember sitting down, I took 10 questions and I got to question 10 and I already was yawning. I was like, oh, how am I going to do another 230 questions of this? I'm like, this is not going to go well. And I kind of did the same thing that you did. Uh, just not quite as, as frequent of breaks, but I decided to go, if I could try to get up to 120 questions. I wanted to get halfway done before I took my first break. And I remember I got to question like 80 and I had to pee so bad because I don't know if any of you are like me, but when I get anxious and nervous, I just have to pee about every five minutes. And I remember instantly when I got into the test, I'm like, oh crap, I got to pee already. And I, by the time I got to question 80, I'm like, I can't focus anymore. I got to pee so bad. I got to get out of here. Yes. I should have just went and peed, but I, I had the game plan of, I had to get to 120 questions first. And so I finished, got there, took a break. And then my original plan was to get to 200 questions, take one last break. Um, but I think I ended up just going all the way through to 240 because I was feeling okay at that moment. But my point is going with a game plan. If you need to adapt, adapt. Um, if I had to go back and do it again, I probably would have just left at question 80 when I really had to pee because it's really not worth being distracted. Um, there's, there's really no harm to taking one more break than you originally were planning, unless you're going to be really, really pushed for time in terms of actual test taking strategies. I kind of already touched on this a little bit in terms of trying to figure out what questions point in the same direction. And that's always been a big thing in my test taking strategy is I don't necessarily go straight to the one answer I think is correct and click it and move on. I used to do that with my undergraduate tests. If they were more like memorization type questions where it was just, yep, move on, you're done. Now with these more concept-based questions, uh, as we move into this harder standardized tests for anesthesia, I've noticed that I can't do that. I have to really pay attention to 
how do I give myself the best chance in terms of eliminating the wrong answer choices? And so what I've done is I try to give myself a 50% chance at the minimum every time is really my goal. At the very, very minimum, I at least try to eliminate one answer choice. So I at least know if it's a multiple choice question, I have a one and third shot then, but I really try to get myself down to two answer choices. Typically what I do is I've noticed that most often, more times than not, let's say we're having a question that relates to some type of cardiovascular disease. So let's say it's a question relating to PVR, you know, which of these would be detrimental to a patient that has right-sided heart failure. And so I know I'm going to be looking at PVR, what's going to affect my pulmonary vascular resistance. And it gives me four answer choices and it has to do one with CO2, another with a medication, another with some type of respiratory issue, um, and then another with another medication. Well, I'm going to look at those four answer choices. And before I even do that, I'm going to think, okay, what's going to make my right-sided heart failure worse? And that's going to be an increase in my PBR, an increase in that afterload or that resistance against the right side of my heart. And so, for example, I'm going to think in my head then, okay, CO2, what's CO2 going to do? CO2 is going to cause more constriction in my pulmonary vascular system if it is higher. So I'm going to look at the answer choice, which one has a higher CO2. I'm going to look at what medication is there and if that medication is going to increase PVR or not. So if it's nitrous oxide or ketamine, those are the two ones that I usually think of that's going to increase that, that PVR. And so if one of those choices is there, I'm going to say, okay, that also pairs with my CO2 answer because those both point in the same direction. They're both going to increase my PVR. And let's say the other two choices decrease my PVR. So now I know instantly, okay, I have two that point one direction and two that point the other direction. So now if it's a select two, because a lot of these questions aren't just straight up, pick one answer and move on. It's always has to be harder than that. So then I know straight off the bat, if I had no knowledge about whether I want my PVR to increase or decrease for this question, I at least know two of them will increase it and two of them will decrease it. So then I know that I have to select one of those pairs. Then the next step then is obviously applying it to the question. The question states, you know, basically that I want to increase my PVR. And if I increase my PVR, that'll make it worse. So then I'd go with the two that increase my PVR. But so my point is here, don't just simply look at a question. And if you don't understand it, let's say it was some disease process that I had no idea what it was about, but I know that two of the answer choices increase my PVR and two of them decrease it. Well, then I'm going to go, if it's a select two question, I'm going to go with two of those answer choices. And now I've instantly given myself a 50% chance if I go one way or the other. If it's a multiple choice question, then I see, well, which three answer choices point in the same direction. So which three choices will increase my PVR? Then I know the other answer has to be true. So it must be a question that relates to decreasing PVR. Um, So hopefully that makes sense is I don't simply just look at a question and try to find an answer. I try to see how the four answers or five answers, however many they are, how they all relate to to each other. And if they all point in the same similar direction. In light of giving you a million different ways to think about it, because we want to give you all the options. I'm kind of the exact opposite as far as when I take tests, I am, like I've mentioned before, not a good test taker. So my tendency is to overthink things and to 
find this small thread that ties two answers together that have no business being tied together. And a lot of times, if I don't know it right off the bat, if I've thought through it, like Cole just talked about, and I still don't know it, I need to just pick two and move on to the next question and then let that roll off my back and move on to the next next question. Because I think often I'll be like, ah, I didn't feel great about that one. And then I'm onto this one. I don't feel great about this one. I'm obviously failing. And then I move on to the next one and I'm trying to overthink it. And honestly, I've I've shortened my test taking time. I've I've worked on answering questions faster and just moving on to the next one and having a very short memory with the questions. It's helped me quite a bit. I've done I've done a lot better. Um, so if if you're on that end of the spectrum, um, maybe just a little food for thought as far as uh, not overthinking it. But like Cole mentioned, those are all really important things to consider as you're taking the questions that you have no idea about. Because like we mentioned earlier, we don't have a lot of confidence when we were going through the C as far as ones that we knew just 100%. So that's not uncommon. And whatever end of the spectrum you fall on, whether you need to take them quickly, move on, or uh, just some good tips to uh, know how to differentiate the different questions. Hopefully that's helpful. That's a good point. Because really the whole time I was going through it, I thought I'm feeling this thing. I'm feeling this miserably because it's it was so much different than any other tests I've taken in terms of they were all asked in a way that I had to make an educated guess. There was hardly any questions that we've talked about before that I was like, yes, this is the correct answer. And so by doing that, don't let that defeat you or bring you down and start sending you in a downward spiral as you progress through the test. It's a long test. It's a mentally exhausting test. But you need to take each question uh, with the same level of focus as you would the previous one, because if you have a one that is a select four and there's seven options or eight options and you, it's taking you forever to figure out and you don't even know what the question's asking and you get flustered and then you go to the very next question and it's a more simplified question. That's just a multiple choice. That, that's worth the same amount. Well, as far as I know, worth the same amount. Don't quote me on that because I guess it could be a little bit. <laughs> I think it's the same. Yeah, I have no idea. Regardless, let's just say for simplicity. We're obviously not employed by the NBCRNA. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say for simplicity's sake, you have two multiple choice questions. One is super hard. You have no idea what it's about. And the other one's a little bit simpler, but you still got to think a little bit on it. It's not just a straight memorization question. It's worth the same amount as that previous multiple choice question. So don't let the first one bring you down. Um, Because again, this is is a long test. Um, You don't need to get an 80% on this test to pass. I can assure you that I did not get an 80% or more on this test. So just for the fact that you're making educated guesses, really trust your gut. Uh, That's when I kind of realized the first time I took the C exam, I noticed that because I purposely chose not to study uh, last year when I came in to take this first time just to see where I was at. And I just trusted my educated guess and went with my, my gut on it. And tried to do that test taking strategy that I mentioned earlier, where I was trying to narrow down answer choices, give myself the best percentage chance on each question. So, you know, you're smart. If you got into CRNA school, you're smart. Trust your gut. Um, You've already put in the work. You put in lots and lots and lots of time into this. So don't psych yourself out. Trust your gut. Move on to the next question. And as Tanner said, don't don't let the those negative thoughts and those fatiguing thoughts that you're not doing well affect you when you move on to the next question. 
and and people reach out to us a lot on Instagram and have questions and we love that. So if you ever have any additional questions or, you know, need more clarification, reach out to us, send us an email or reach out to us on Instagram. We, we love having those questions. We hope this is helpful for you a little more informal of a podcast, probably a little bit longer than our usual one. But I know this has been a point that people have asked a lot of questions about. And so we hope this is helpful. And again, feel free to reach out to us for more clarification, but go and crush that C exam. Thank you.